Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. You're listening to the Fish Untamed podcast, your home for fly fishing the backcountry. This is episode 111 with Palmer Henson on brook trout updates and Troutman success. You know how it goes. I always start with uh, how people got their background in the outdoors, but you've been on here so many times at this point that uh, we can probably skip that formality. But instead, I would like to hear um, how things have been going with your brook trout experiment and maybe as a bit of a background um, for anyone who hasn't heard your previous episodes, maybe tell people um, kind of how you, just kind of a summary of how you got started in the brook trout project and you know where things have, have come and where you're at now. So the brook trout project, uh, um, based in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, t- 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, I started focusing more and more on small stream fishing and eventually started catching brook trout in Georgia. And initially I had a personal goal of, let me see if I can find 10 streams in Georgia that have native brook trout. And then it became 20 and then it became you know 30 and 40 and up to 111 right now, though I'm, I'm slowing down dramatically on the, the new finds. And along the way, I met some people at the Department of Natural Resources in Georgia, became good friends with them, and we started collaborating on all the different streams where I was finding brook trout and where they thought I should and I wasn't and, and vice versa. Uh, and then we'll, we'll get deeper into the story. We've eventually pulled in the University of Georgia's forestry department into the project to uh, work on some eDNA testing uh, to further kind of quantify where there where there are brook trout and where there aren't brook trout, and uh, 
we feel we're running a lot of data and a lot of sampling and eventually we'll figure out what to do with all that if it means trying to change fishing regulations or uh or you know reintroducing brook trout in, in places where uh where they they were historically but but aren't anymore <clears throat> uh so the update from on that front from our last project, I think where we or last last podcast where we left off last time, eDNA sampling was we knew about it but didn't really have any super familiarity with it, um, much less having ever tried it. And eDNA sampling uh, is a methodology where as fish swim, they shed DNA when they bump across things and water just going off of them. And you can pull their DNA out of the water. Uh, and basically you have to look for something very specific. So in our case, look for brook trout DNA. It won't just, when you run the samples, it won't just tell you everything that's in the water, but we can, um, you can look at the water and look at the samples and figure out if they're brook trout in a stream based on uh, environmental DNA. Uh, so we've, um, I built a, built this database and have been working with the DNR where I, as I mentioned, I've found brook trout on 111 streams and there's another 120 or 25 that I've fished hard and haven't found brook trout. Uh, the DNR is backfilled and is, is gone back with traditional electroshocking and looked at streams where they thought I should have found brook trout, but didn't. Um, and actually this year for the first time there were, they embarrassed me. They found brook trout on a couple of streams that uh, I didn't, I had kind of written off. Uh, I mean, in my defense, there was one when I, I, my notes said I need to go back. I'd run short on time and gotten to an elevation just below where they sampled and found brook trout. But they, they've been doing that. Uh, and they also found brook trout on a stream that I hadn't sampled. So there are a few new ones in the database from, from that. Um, but then the, you know, this next evolution on the environmental DNA, we, we pulled in uh, a couple professors at the University of Georgia, uh, Jay Sheldon and Brian Shamblin, who uh, have a lab at, at UGA. And they've been kind of playing with environmental DNA, uh, but hadn't really perfected it. So we got, um, we got them through the Native Fish Coalition, which I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's basically an East Coast thing. It's in the Northeast, it's mostly about brook trout and protecting brook trout. But as you get down to Georgia, it's more protecting. There's 245 species of fish, native fish in Georgia, and it's about protecting a lot of strains of bass and other things along with, uh, along with brook trout. Um, but they had done some eDNA testing up in Maine looking for Arctic char. And so we, uh, we got the University of Georgia team together with um, the University of Maine team who had done that work. And they helped with protocols. Uh, we lucked out in that UGA had um, an environmental testing machine. It's called a Smith Root eDNA uh, machine that is expensive. It costs about $40,000 that 
someone had bought and they weren't just weren't using and um brian uh brian shamlin was able to kind of grab hold of that uh which was a big plus because it would have been a really expensive project otherwise <clears throat> and started working on our protocols and it's taken a long time with some missteps um we initially we thought the uh the sampling unit every time you take a sample it's going through a you're pulling the water through a filter and then that filter is what where you're pulling the dna off of and each of those kind of filter units costs like 16 dollars or something like that and we we're trying to reuse them uh not the filter itself but the plastic housing and things like that by cleaning them in bleach and they were deteriorated so we we had a bunch of missteps like that um and and some some not great results uh, early on, but the team, you know, mostly the EGNA team, working with um, Sarah from you know who was on your podcast, Sarah Baker and Liam Brotherton, you know, who I know we talked a lot about before. Uh, EGNA working with the two of them perfected the methods, and they they did um, cool cage studies where they put picked a stream with no trout in it at all and put, you know, three or four brook trout in a cage and were able to uh, detect them through eDNA testing as much as a thousand meters downstream. Oh, wow. Um, which is really, it's super impressive. Uh, so God, anyway, it took a long time, but got the methodology nailed down um, where everyone had a lot of confidence in it. Uh, and they found we've, we've, run uh, 40 or pulled 44 samples so far. Eight of them were in the early days um, and have been run already. Uh, one one was really cool. There was a stream that I thought had uh, rainbows and brown trout. The DNR thought had rainbows and brown, and we're, we're totally in line on that. And uh, the eDNA testing showed it had brook trout so I went the next weekend and fished it and caught two brook trout. Um, but they, they kind of looked, they were too big really. And they weren't, weren't, the colors weren't very vibrant. And uh, we were really excited that we had found this new brook trout stream that we didn't know about. But when we, uh, we finally did the analysis, it was a tributary of a stream that was along the Georgia, South Carolina border. And the, this stream, the border stream, uh, South Carolina DNR had stocked brook trout in it, so a couple of so they were basically stockers. So, but it's still cool that the DNA worked like that. Um, now we're about to run uh, samples from you know nearly forty more streams, and then there's another thirty on the uh, collection list that'll happen in this fall, and then we'll run those samples, and then we'll you know I think that's really what we need to figure out if. Uh, if our database is correct and if it needs to be adjusted on where where there were historical populations, uh, where the populations exist today, um, how many have been lost, you know, is it, if we lost 25% of the historical populations or 30 or 10 or, or whatever, that's really what we're looking for. Uh, and then figure out what to do from there. Um, and then simultaneous with that, we've another kind of genetic study that we've been working towards for a long time. Uh, several years ago, uh, DNR in conjunction with um, the U.S. Geological Survey had collected fin clippings from brook trout uh, 
they collected it was over 500 fins from 15 different brook trout populations, but never had the the resources to process them and figure out the lineage of of those brook trout. So the the idea is you know there's a you have southern strain brook trout and you have northern strain brook trout and and slight variations of each of those. And you know the southern strain is what are native to Georgia and you know Tennessee and North Carolina and places like that. And northern strain you'd find in Maine and the ones that are uh, stocked in the in Colorado would be northern strain brook trout. But over the years, people have kind of lost track of if there have been northern strain brook trout uh, stocked in Georgia, or you know, in which populations are the true, you know, true true native southern strain. And then also uh, one of the um, big negative, the biggest negative impact of brook trout is if rainbows get introduced in a stream and the rainbows just outcompete brook trout, they'll wipe them out over a period of time. That's the single biggest challenge for brook trout. But one of the, the kind of the next on the list is um, if you have an isolated population, the, the brook trout basically end up getting super inbred and develop all these weaknesses, uh, genetic weaknesses, and, and that can wipe out a population as well. And so this, this um, true genetic testing uh, well, you know, we'll see if they're, you know, the more isolated populations, if there really are big differences in the genetics and if some of the genetics are kind of going downhill. Uh, and finally, we've, um, the DNR uh, for years, their view was, you know, we could spend $40,000 to run these fin clippings and do the tests or we could buy a new truck and we really need some new trucks. So <laughs> it gets put off. Um, so I had um, I had volunteered to split the cost with anyone who'd be willing to split it with me, and Sarah Sarah found a bunch of money out of TU and also got the DNR to throw in. So we, we finally have the resources to um, to run those run those samples, and I think Brian uh, Shamblin at UGA is going to do the. Um, there's a lot of prep work in the samples to get them ready to be run, uh, and then the in the true owner of those samples is the U.S. Geological Survey, and uh, they're the ones who will do the final runs on it. Um, but at least we can kind of cut cut the costs a bit um, and speed up, speed up the time frame by having Brian run them. Um, so I, I've been rambling here. It's, uh, you know, the, I've been out with the team, you know, the EGA team. There's a guy um, named uh, Wesley Giron who's who's, uh, I don't know what he is, he's like a, maybe a grad student who works works under Brian, who's who goes out with Leon and Sarah and collects most of the samples and he'll bring some other students with him. And I've gone a few times and it's it's really it's really cool. It's, uh, the whole thing is great. So anyway, it's this awesome collaboration now. It's, it's gone like a whole, whole nother level since we talked maybe a year and a half ago uh, with, uh, with UGA and, you know, the Native Fish Coalition eventually will probably have a much bigger hand in it when it comes time to trying to change regulations. None of us really are sure how to go about that. If you if you tweak even the slightest hunting figure, or hunting or fishing regulation in Georgia, the blowback is just intense. Um, so <laughs> I don't know how that'll go. Do you know what the proposed changes would be? Yeah, I, I have my suggestions. So right now, uh, the... Catch limit for trout 
any kind of trout, any size is eight trout a day per person. Uh, there are a few watersheds that are either artificial only, or you can only keep brook trout if they're, um, or only keep any trout if they're over like 16 inches, which effectively makes it catch and release. So that would, if you wanted to kind of like quietly kind of bleed it in, you just add more watersheds that have those same regulations. Uh, but another thing you could do is say, you know, you can only keep brook trout if they're over nine or 10 inches. Um, you know, keep as many as you want that are over nine or 10 inches, but they're, you know, it's a super rare thing. And here to find brook trout that are that big, most of them are, you know, four to seven inches or something like that. So that effectively would, would block it too. Uh, but I don't know. And, and the reintroducing, um, uh, you wouldn't have any, no controversy there, no no public hearings about changing regulations and things like that to reintroduce some species in streams that had historical populations. So, Would they really be at risk of being kept to the point of population decline when they are like four to seven inches? Like, are, are people going out and wanting to go keep eight, four-inch fish? Is that something that's happening? So, no, not for eight, you know, small fish, but... Uh, and this is this is a big problem, and and honestly, I'm not sure if anyone really knows how big a problem it is. There are people who, so they're in the southeast. Everyone calls brook trout specks because they're they've got specks on them. So, and you'll hear it again and again that brook trout tastes the best, you know, of all the trout. And they taste better than rainbows and browns. I mean, everyone. It's almost like everyone's decided that's true. I, I have no idea if it's true or not, but there's if you. If you go up into North Georgia, everyone wants to eat specks because they taste the best and they'll just go bait fish and collect 40 of them, just fill a bucket, complete poaching. Um, and you, when you when you go to a, uh, a stream that's close to a road that maybe Trout Unlimited or the DNR, someone's done stream, stream improvements on, it's, it's just uncanny. You won't find any fish in the stream improvements because everyone knows they're there and they've been cleaned out. But if you go, you know, quarter mile, half mile upstream, you'll start catching brook trout. Um, so I think it's very possible that you can wipe out uh, brook trout by overfishing. But a lot of people don't believe that, including a lot of people who know a lot more about it than I do. Uh, you know, I have seen one stream that, um, oh, I fished it the first time in maybe like 2019 and caught brook trout on it. And it's one that's reason it's not easy to get to, but it's reasonably well known. And I've fished it each of the years since then, fished it hard and, and gone back a lot and it, haven't found a single brook trout. I mean, that would be the the one stream I've seen in the in the years that I've been doing this that I've seen has been wiped out. That we're gonna um that's on the list to pull an EDNA sample. Uh in the fall, when, once the weather cools down, uh, so we'll see see what that turns up. But um, I mean, I've I've fished it a lot, and I don't think there's a single fish in there. And there was, and I wouldn't be surprised at all if someone just cleaned it out or got it down to where there were so few fish they couldn't repopulate. Gotcha. Uh, I have I have a couple questions about the eDNA process that I'm not sure you'll know, but if you do, then great. If not, you can just you know pass on it. But um, for what you're talking about, the stream that has browns, rainbows, and now brook trout too. When they're doing the eDNA testing, 
is the question that they're you know putting out into the world what's in here or is the question are there brook trout as in are they picking up that there are browns and rainbows and then they also picked up that there are brook trout or are they only looking at brook trout and it's just a yes or no a a one or a zero for whether there are brook trout like are, are they using it to see what else is also living in there at the same time no they are they have to just look for it's too too difficult to look for you can look for a couple things and interesting there there's a um i guess it's a an amphibious lizard called a hellbender you'll have to look at the picture of it they're crazy looking uh yeah we had those right group okay so they are coincidentally also because we're doing it and they're curious about hellbenders they're looking for brook trout and hellbenders okay but it's like they go in having to know what they're looking for they don't just get like a a platter of here's all the stuff that's here. They have to be deliberately looking for a thing. And if they don't care about rainbow trout, then they're not going to be looking for rainbow trout. Correct. Gotcha. Yeah. And my other question is in kind of the order of operations that these things happen. So it it seems like the three big techniques that are going on are you, you're fishing. um, Someone is electro fishing and then someone is doing eDNA, you know, in any uh, order or whatever. I'm, I'm just wondering what order does this happen in? Is it kind of just all over the place where resources are available or is it like you go in first and fish and kind of give, you know, if you catch a brook trout, then that answers that. Um, and then they come in and do other things. Is there is there an order of operations that keeps costs low while, you know, getting the information they need? Or is it is it kind of what's available at the time? No, it's there's definitely an order to it. Uh, so there are streams that they've electroshocked for years and years and years. And they do it on, there's, there's, I don't know, there's like 16 or 17 that they do it on an annual basis. Uh, and they, they're weighing out and measuring all the fish. And so over time, they can see how that population's changed. And it may be, maybe more than maybe in the twenties. Um, but <clears throat> as I fish, if I, if I don't find brook trout, they've been going back and electroshocking to look for the brook trout. And they've been doing that now for several years. Uh, and and now the where they're not finding any, but they used to have brook trout. Now we're going back and doing the eDNA sampling to see if they're brook trout there. So that's uh, that's kind of the order: uh, fishing, electroshocking, eDNA. Okay, and that was kind of my guess. They're, they're exceptions, but that's that's sort of the order. Um, and I may have asked you this on the last episode, or maybe even the first episode. Um, but forgive me, I don't I don't remember for the streams that. You said the few that you got embarrassed on because you went out and said I didn't find any, uh, and they came along and found some. Uh, how how thorough do you how thoroughly do you fish a stream before you comfortably declare that there are probably not brook trout here? Like how how do you know when you have gotten uh, a good enough sampling yourself? So I usually fish them incredibly hard, like all the way up to what I call where it's splinters, where basically you know you're there's just a spring seeping yeah. out of the side of the mountain uh, on the, the two where they found that I, one, one, as I mentioned, I did, I did plan on going back to it. I just hadn't gotten to it. Um, so that was a, that was a working process on mine and they kind of, kind of beat me to it. Uh, I was very excited that they did though. Got me right back there. Uh, and then the other one, I was just, I mean, embarrassingly, I was just lazy. I, in my mind, I was convinced there weren't any brook trout, and I fished it up a little ways, and it got to a road crossing, and it looked really small on the other side. And, uh, I mean, I would have had to go upstream another, like, quarter or half mile. And eventually, you know, I did that when they found it. But they they um, 
came in much higher and found it found the fish like immediately. Uh, but normally, <laughs> normally I'm not that lax. I'm, I'm much more diligent. Um, and then the one they found brook trout that wasn't even on my radar was was a pretty small tributary. And I've, I've been going back over the last four years, going back in particular the last two or three years to places, you know, watersheds and areas, wildlife management areas that I'd fished, but hadn't really checked like every stream and really dug as deep as I can. And that's where this year I've I found other streams that fell in that category. You know, I went and hit the obvious stuff, hit the bigger stuff, and then moved on to the next you know, wildlife management area or, or whatever piece of geography. And remember, we're talking about a big, I mean, small relative to a state like Maine, but for, you know, still uh, like 40 miles by, you know, 60 miles or more than that. It's So it's a re- relatively big area. In total, it's probably a million and a half acres or something that I'm trying to cover. And some of it is, you know, you're hiking in five miles to check a stream so it's very, you know, it can be pretty time consuming. What is uh, keeping the brook trout in these specific stretches? Because you said they, you know, they went up just a little bit farther and found them there. And it sounds, you know, that's maybe elevation related. But um, what's what's preventing the fish from spreading out and kind of filling up the whole stream? Is it just elevation and water temperature that's keeping them up in some very specific section of the stream? Or is it unknown? It's so it's partly kind of cleaner, cooler water. And a lot of us are just pushed up there by other other trout, you know, largely rainbow trout. So the, the typical situation is you've got rainbow trout you know, back in starting in, I don't know when, like the 20s or 30s. They just, every time a road crossed the stream, they dumped rainbow trout in. I mean, just across all of North Georgia. Uh, so, but eventually as you're working up those streams, you've got some kind of waterfall or natural barrier that prevents the rainbows from going any further up. And the brook trout are above the, that natural barrier. They do like cleaner, colder water. They, they can adapt better to those sorts of environments. They can adapt better to you know, sort of like pool after pool after pool separated by little waterfalls and stuff like that. Um, so brook trout like those conditions a lot more than other, other trout, but Part of it is they've just been forced up there. You know, the ones below a certain level, you know, get wiped out by rainbows. And and where I was in that one stream I just talked about, there were I was catching rainbows down low, and you know there wasn't any kind of obvious barrier. But but there were, you know, and sometimes this just happens. Even without the barrier, the rainbows will stay lower, and the brook trout will stay higher, and they will uh, will survive happily together. But usually not. Last thing I wanted to ask about is just uh, where where you stand at this point. You know, how many streams are you at? How many streams do you do you have any on your list that you're still waiting to check out? Do you have a feel for you know how far along you are in the process? You know, I think we're pretty far along on that side there. So the database has you know roughly 250 streams, and there's there's probably 25 or 20 maybe that. Uh, I've been to that I need to go back or, or there's some that I think are longer shots that I just haven't been to yet. And, and there's constantly streams added. So by the time it's all done there, I'm sure it'll be well over 300 streams, but it's slowed down. I mean, my peak year was probably three or four years ago. I got, you found like 40 new brook draft streams and 
Last year, I didn't find any. This year, oh. I found I've gotten five so far, so far, but with a little bit of assist from the DNA, uh, DNR, and then I found a couple on my own. Um, but it's it's definitely slowing down. Uh, but we're I, we do have we've pretty much covered all the streams that were in the historical DNR uh, database. That you know, we've definitely covered the ones that historically had Brooktrat in them. Okay. So that's and that's that was the real challenge because most states have you know the fishing area is just so big you can't you have no chance of like getting to a number and saying you know we've lost twenty five percent of our population in the last forty years. I mean we have the real chance to get there because even though it's a big area, you know it's still manageable, uh, and we know that you know there are a, a limited number of streams that had brook trout historically in the database that that we can really come to a number which is unique um and then the other all the other facets are cool and most states have done the uh genetic testing that we're trying to get those samples run now the, to check out the lineage um and there are places that are doing some you know starting to do some eDNA testing as well so but it's cool it's still fun well i'm excited that uh I, I'm both excited and sorry for you that you're kind of slowing down because I feel like on one hand it must be satisfying to know that you're, you know, you're kind of running out of streams to, to sample. Um, and at the same time, it's like then you don't have any more streams to sample and you just have to go, you know, fish known streams. So I, I'm sure it's a little bit uh, bittersweet kind of slowing down to the point of, you know, having years where you don't find any new streams. You know, a little bit, but it's it's also been really fun to... Uh go back to streams that I fished one time five or six years ago. And my notes just rave about how awesome that stream was. And, you know, to go back and fish some of those, and I've been doing, doing some of that. So there, it's all good. And I'll, I'll keep finding, I mean, I'm sure three or four years from now, I'll still be looking for new brook trap streams. Yeah. Just going, going deeper, deeper and higher. Well, I want to um, switch gears a little bit and hear about your Troutman attempt. You will be the second person I've talked to recently about Troutman, and I'm excited to hear your story because um, her story, uh, I feel like it's going to be a bit different from yours just because she you know, lives up here. She lives in Colorado. She lives up in the mountains. She has kind of like a local you know, route she can do um, that she's pretty familiar with and she knows where the different species exist and, and all that. So, you know, it's a matter of just doing it. And for you coming out West and trying to complete this, you know, you're kind of coming into unknown territory in a way. So I, I want to hear about, um, how, I guess I'd like to start with how you planned it because that's, that's I think, probably one of the biggest hurdles. Um, and obviously we'll get to the story itself as well and, and how that played out. But um, start start me off by Walking me through how you figured out where you were going to go, how you planned this trip, how you found out about the fish that were going to be there and, and all that. And we'll kind of go from there. Yeah. Uh, and I do have to thank you because I heard on your podcast with there was um, someone who had just done the Pacific Coast Trail or and maybe had attempted a trap man. And that was the first time I'd heard about it. You all talked about it briefly. Uh so I have you to thank for it or blame for it, however you <laughs> want to look at it. That was three or four months ago when, when I heard that. Um, and I had already had a trip planned, a fishing trip planned to sort of where the Continental Divide goes through Wyoming. 
And it's an area that I've been to, oh, maybe a dozen times or more, you know, going back to like the early 90s. So I used to do lots of climbing and we used to go into that area to climb. And, you know, every two or three years have gone back to that same basic area. And the, the climbing eventually became fishing trips and, you know, more like just backcountry trips. But the last year I went back to the same area and climbed, uh, you know, full on climbing trip to that same area. So it's an area I knew really well. I already had a trip planned, you know, airline tickets booked, you know, everything, you know, a couple of my my close fishing friends, uh, Gene Wilson and Jeff Giuliano were going with me and they've been, they went with me four years ago to the same area. Um, so it wasn't, it, you're right, I was going into an area where I had like one shot at it. It wasn't like if I had bad weather, I could come back the next weekend or something like that. And also it was coming from sea level to the area I never got below 10,000 feet and I was pushing 11 for a lot of it. So that was a big unknown, what would happen with um, just the altitude. I mean, I've climbed enough that I knew I acclimatized well enough that, you know, I'd be okay, but I didn't know if I could really run, you know, coming from sea level to 10,000 feet. Uh, but I also, we, we, I fished there enough that I knew where, and part of the problem with the area is you've got, rainbows and cutthroats together a lot of areas and i didn't really want to have like a hybrid fish and you've got golden trout and rainbows together a lot of places and there's all this mishmash um so i i had to find streams where you had just cutthroats and and an area i mean brook trout were easy because they were by themselves anyway but uh, there are no browns browns in the area and then an area where it was just pure golden and pure rainbow but i found them all and uh I had several days before I actually attempted the run to kind of map it out, um, including, you know, working the, the cutthroat stream was probably, I don't know, a third or half a mile from the main trail that I was running on. And so I had to, you know, in the prior days, go up where I found like a big aggressive group of cutthroats and then track over to, you know, with my GPS over to where the trail was. And I stuck like a car in along the trail um, so I could get back to that same spot in pretty quick order. So that, and then, then it was, the, I mean, the biggest thing with the, the planning for me though, was the last, I mean, on paper, um, I'm like a great person to have done this. I've done tons of marathons and trail marathons and longer, you know, ultras and Ironmans and all this endurance stuff. But that all kind of came to an end in, uh, in 2015 or 16. I, um, in 2014, I did rim to rim to rim in the Grand Canyon, um, which was like a, you know, it's like 46 miles with an 11 or 12,000 feet of elevation gain. It's, it's hard and, and it went great. And then I started, I had a qualifying time for Boston for spring of 2015 and the training, my hip was like really hurting. I was going slow. And I ended up with, with like an, it's like a 345 or so. It wasn't like an embarrassingly slow time, but it was slow and I hurt. And um, so that's summer of 15. I was like, I'm going to take the summer off. I'm going to bike. I'm going to hit the, do anything but run. Uh, and then there was a marathon in February of 2016 um, in North Carolina, a trail marathon called Black Mountain that I was 
started training for in like October, November. And once I got above like 13 miles on my long runs, I was just like shut down. My hip killed me. And so I went to, uh, I abandoned that idea, went to uh, orthopedist and they took x-rays and they said, you know, you've got like, like almost no cartilage um, in either hip left. So you can try PT for a while, but if that doesn't work, we're going to have to, you know, replace your hips basically. And um, so that didn't work. And so in the fall of uh, 2016, I had one in my right hip. They, they didn't actually have to do a full replacement. There's a thing called a resurfacing where they put a, you've got the ball in the, in the cap and, um, or socket, ball and socket, and they put a cap on the ball and a matching cup in the socket. But still, it's like titanium, you know, setting off metal detectors and stuff like that. Uh, so they did that on my right hip. And then my left hip was done the beginning of 2017. Um, and after that, I, yeah, I got, I, I was kind of saying, okay, if I can run five or six miles, three days a week, you know, I'll be completely happy. And, uh, and I got pretty quickly got back to being able to do that. Um, but one of my hips still hurt. And so for, from 2017 till like April of this year, that was all I was running. Um, you know, five or six miles, three days a week. Uh, so when I heard about the trap man and looked it up and started doing the math, it's like, well, I could power walk a lot. If I was really smart about my fishing and really efficient, I could like power walk a lot of it, you know, run some flats and downhills and, and I can get, I could definitely get it done. And, um, and then I started really thinking about, you know, so I started running more like immediately after I heard your podcast, I like (laughs) jumped to eight miles. Uh, and figured out it was the thing that was really hurting me was my piriformis, that piriformis syndrome, which I don't know, it's a muscle that goes across your butt. And when you move your leg sideways, it engages, which isn't a big deal, but it, it, uh, your sciatic nerve either abuts it or sometimes goes through it. So when it becomes inflamed, it's like you have sciatica. So I started aggressively addressing that and running more, um, and so I got I still slow, but and I still would stop every few miles and stretch out my piriformis. But I got up to so I, my longest runs were like 20 miles, super slow. Um, but I would stack on the weekends. I would stack uh, like on Saturday. I would go hike, you know, 17 miles and stop and fish two or three streams, um, and then Sunday run 20. My dog, my dog was hung in there with me the whole, all the way through. <laughs> he was putting in the longest weeks for like 38 miles of running and 18 miles of hiking. Um, he didn't do the hiking with me, but he was there for the runs. So it was cool. It, it all was like falling into place. And then I had to think about, I ended up carrying everything in a, uh, like one of the bigger camelbacks. I swapped a hundred ounce um, bladder for a 50 ounce bladder because the area I was in had tons of water and just, put all the food I need for the day in that, um, you know, plus gels and stuff like that. And then I took a uh, six and a half foot three weight rod, which was kind of small and light. It sounds counterintuitive, but small and light um, with a small, you know, smallest reel I could find. Uh, the I was able to like pull it apart, but not, not take the line out or take the fly off and just kind of collapse it all together. And it fit in, you know, there's a, like a 
size, almost like a water bottle pocket on the uh, Camelback. So it would uh, slide right in there with reel on it. And then there's a clip on the top that would hold all the line and the pieces of the rod together. Um, so I could run with it and it worked, it worked great. The rod was a, um, I actually built the rod on a Sage Dart blank. A Sage Dart is like a super fast action, small stream rod, which also kind of counter to what you normally see. So I could, even though it was only six and a half feet, I could cast it pretty far, I mean, plenty far enough for where I was. So it worked great. The trails were rockier than I thought. I uh, ran, I was running in running shoes, you know, trail running shoes. Um, I have a really wide foot, so I left my shoe. I always leave my shoes like a little bit loose and on the uneven terrain, my feet were sliding around more than I realized the last four miles I had. I was just taking Advil and those caffeinated uh, cliff shots. Um, to, my, I had these huge blisters on like the forefoot of both feet, which my uh, when I got back to camp, you know, we were like 14 miles from the road where we were camp. So because we had kind of packed in 14 miles and my uh, buddies Gene and Jeff got to pop blisters on the bottom of my feet for two days before we hiked out, tape them up. Did they do it too? I know that the trout man you're supposed to do in like, you know, a group, but that doesn't mean that everyone's actually doing a trout man. It just means that, you know, you have someone there for safety. Like, did your friends also complete the trout man challenge or were they just there for support? No, no, they were, they were, they actually went fishing while I was doing the trout man. Uh, they wished me well. And uh, <laughs> it was, I thought they'd be back at camp when I got back. I got, I, it took me like 10 hours. And, and for anyone who, doesn't know that. So the trout man, you've, it's, you have to run a trail marathon with at least 3000 feet of elevation gain, totally self-supported. And along the way, you have to catch four different species of fish and you've got 12 hours to do it. Um, uh, you forgot one of those important parts. Oh, the beer at the end. Yeah. So I got a couple waivers. So I got a waiver on being allowed to do it on my own. And then I got a waiver on, uh, I, I drink, but not like a lot. And it, at that elevation, I, I got him to sign off and I ate like a bag of 15 mini donuts and drank a quart of powdered milk. Oh God, that my, sounds uh, way worse. <laughs> yeah, that's what, that's what they thought. That's what Andrew thought. So I got a waiver on that. Um, but I came in, it's funny, you know, you're, you come to like the finish and you know, for an Ironman, they're like, you, you know, Palmer Henson, you are an Ironman. Or you finish like a tough mutter, you know, you are one tough mutter. You know, the, here there's, you know, just like I actually caught um, the golden at the very end and took a picture of it, let it go and hit stop on my watch. Uh, and it's like stand there by myself on the side of the stream <laughs> and then like limp over to where we were camped and the other two guys showed up. Um, right about then there's this other couple too shout out to mike and ellen you know who you are a colorado couple that uh, older couple that we ran into out there and hung out with a lot but that was it that was my trout man it uh i got super efficient my brook trout from when i took my pack off to when i was you know putting it back on again after disassembling the rod again everything took six minutes my uh rainbow turnaround time was 10 minutes but i also refilled my uh water bladder on my on my pack i used uh those aqua tabs instead of pumping to purify the water um cutthroat was wasn't yeah it was probably about 10 or 12 minutes also um 
not including the, you know, obviously I, I was able to run over that half mile to get to where it was. And then the golden, I'd, I'd actually caught a golden sort of like as I was getting ready to start in my Gene and Jeff were like hanging out with me and uh, I was like, I'll just tack on another, you know, it's like my second cast, catch a golden. And I was like, I'll just tack on 10 minutes at the end. But then I started feeling bad about that. So when I finished, you know, I actually like recaught a golden um, before I stopped the watch. So to make it a little more legit. Anyway, that's it. I'm the, uh, Andrew told me I, I've got the uh, designation of the uh, OKF oldest known trout man oh wow that's quite the prestigious honor (laughs) exactly exactly what was your total time on the trout man because i feel like you the way you're describing your fish they were pretty quick and a lot of people struggle it sounds like with the fishing because you can't really guarantee anything and if you go to a place that has multiple species you know, you might be there for an hour trying to get the, the one brown trout that's in there trying to fight off all the rainbows. So what was your total time? And d- did you feel like it went pretty efficiently? Yeah. So it was, so there's a little more to the story too that I'll tell you. So my total time was uh, 10 hours and four minutes. And, you know, and the reason I got there was because I was super efficient on the fishing, uh, as I, as I've mentioned. So the, I did it last Wednesday. Um, and the Tuesday before I was, my dog Hobbs and I were out for a, uh, run and we were, we oftentimes will run at a track where, um, I'll stop every lap or so and do either some pull-ups or push-ups or something like that. So I did a set of push-ups and I was getting up and, I did something to my right leg and like popped something. So I, I stood up and uh, Hobbs is, Hobbs, you know, as I stood up, like starts running and uh, I'm not following him. And he like stops and looks back and, you know, kind of like, you know, what the hell, let's go. And uh, I I couldn't run at all. I, I could limp. I I could like barely walk. And this was like, eight days before I was supposed to do it. Um, oh, no. And <laughs> so Hobbs, Hobbs came back and he like just kept looking at me. He knew something was like seriously wrong. And so it limped. It was like three quarters of a mile back home, kind of limped home and didn't do anything the next day and did like an easy spin bike workout the next. And, and then we flew out to Salt Lake and drove up to Wyoming. Um, and by Saturday, I could walk okay. Uh and it got a little bit better each day, but I still couldn't run great. Even you know, by by Wednesday morning when I was going to do it, I I was okay on the flats um, and okay, kind of okay downhill, but was being really careful. So the fact that I was so efficient on the fishing, I could, as I mentioned, I could uh, just like power walk hard. I mean, I had two two trekking poles. Um, I was walking a little over three miles an hour. Uh, so when you average in the fishing and refilling the water bladder and stuff like that, it, I came in like right around a little better than, um, I don't know, 2.6, 2.7 miles an hour overall. And that terrain is like super hard terrain to, I mean, if you were just like normal hiking it, you'd be lucky to do two miles an hour. So and I, you know, I had a heart rate monitor on my watch and it would, on the uphills, it was still hitting like 140 or 140 plus. Um, but anyway, that's, that's kind of, the, you know, I didn't re- really run very much. Uh, 
just power walked hard and was super efficient. But you're right. I mean, that's one of the the challenges of the trap man is you could everything could line up and you could not count that or not catch that brown trout. All the work I did ahead of time searching out the fish um, paid off, and I was in a super fishy area. We, you know, two days before the trout man, I you know probably caught 25 goldens. You know, caught as many rainbows as I wanted where I was going to catch a rainbow, caught tons of, gold, of cutthroats. And I mean, there were, there's just a lot of fish. They all, and they all would hit like a 14 parachute atoms. <laughs> That's the nice thing about the, the backcountry fish there. Like if you can find them, they're not usually too hard to catch at least. Yeah. Yeah. The last one, the golden I got on a, uh, like a 14, um, chubby Chernobyl. I tie them with, um, like just went one wing. So they're a little, little smaller, but, they just crushed them. It was that part was awesome. The only de- the only thing that didn't go right was the blisters in the last you know four miles or whatever. But everything else was went great. Now I have to ask: uh, Do you have another one in your future? Do you think? Do you have like an East Coast one, a, like a Georgia mountain stream one? I don't know. I probably not, but I, I probably will do a flathon. There's one in North Carolina next year. I might do one. Um, the, the trick with the East Coast is since they're only three species of trout on the East Coast, uh, you have to add like a smallmouth bass or something and and they live in pretty different areas. It'd be pretty contrived. You'd end up, you'd almost end up having to run on some roads and things for a lot of yeah. it. It wouldn't be like a true trail experience. Yeah, I was kind of wondering about that because I think in the instructions, it does specify that it has to be four salmonid species, but I can't imagine that there wouldn't be some exceptions for people who live in places that don't have four salmonid species, um, the same way that, you know, you need to drink a 12% beer, but obviously you can replace it with something far worse, like, you know, bag of donuts. Um, <laughs> worse, yeah. So I have to assume that they would make an exception if you catch, you know, three trout species and, you know, one of any, any other kind of fish. But like you said, if those trout are all in the mountains, then uh, you might be kind of stuck having to do it right on the edge of the mountains, which might be kind of hard to like straddle and, and actually get all four of them um, since that one yeah. would be in a much different environment. Yeah, it would be pretty. So on the there's somewhere on the website where it says they're trying to figure out an East Coast solution, which um, would, would include some other sort of game fish. But again, I think it'd be pretty, I mean, the, the problem with like running and fishing out here is you end up, unless you have like a forest service road that's closed, um, you know, a lot of places you can just get to more easily. You just drive up really close to them. You don't, you you know, so it it feels a little contrived. It feels like you're forcing it. Uh, It's still, I mean, there's training runs or hikes I was doing where I was hiking, you know, 17, 18 miles and fishing along the way. Those, those actually were really, really fun. So I don't know. I'm not committing to another one, but I might. (laughs) I've been uh, wondering what their, um, explanation would be for some of the longer ones. Have you seen the longer ones that they have now, like the old trout and the, I think they've got a fin sanity now that's like a hundred miles. Have you seen those on their website? Yeah. And Andrew, uh, Andrew emailed and said he was going to, it's, it's like early September. They're going to try the all trout. And I think the fifth there is, um, might not be a trout. It might be something different. That's what I was wondering because the, the long one, the hundred miler, I think requires 10 species of fish because wow. there's, there's one guy in the group who is, um, crazy and has done all of the previous challenges they've thrown at him. And so they threw this one at him, which is the hundred miles, 10 fish, 
I don't even know what the beer. I feel like the beer is bordering on wine at that point, and um, <laughs> something like ten thousand feet of elevation gain. And I'm like, there, you know, there aren't ten species of trout to catch around here, so that one has to be opened up to other species. But at that point, you've got to catch like four or five different types of trout, and I feel like a you know a bluegill and bass and a pike, and a, you know, there's to find ten species of fish all in you know a little area that you can run seems like the hardest part of of the whole thing. Yeah, that would be really hard. Even five is really hard, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I think five's kind of the upper limit before it starts to get pretty challenging, at least out here. You know, we could we could potentially throw in like a grayling or a golden or something like that to get that fifth. Yeah, I was going to say, because you have, I know you've got grayling in Colorado's, mm-hmm. or not grayling, uh, goldens in Colorado, so you could, well, both you of could them. definitely do. Yeah, okay. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, graylings aren't too hard if you know where to look. Um, so that, I guess that could get you five or six, depending on how many you need, but... Yeah, that's that's a, a, a tall order. Um, tell me about your flyathlon plans. You said that you're going to maybe do the North Carolina one. Are we going to end up having to donate to each other's next year? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, yeah. They're, coincidentally, uh, we've got a good friend who's got a house in Saluda. So they, I don't think they've published the dates yet, but uh, I've got a place to stay. So I'll probably go do it. I, and I don't even know how, how did the, has it worked from a timestamp? standpoint. I mean, you've, you've got your six or seven mile run and then do you get time deducted if you, or you, you know, your time gets reduced if you, based on how many fish you catch or? It's not based on how many. Um, you can submit one fish at the end, one fish of your choice. So you can catch as many as you want and then you can submit whichever one you want and you get a time deduction based on the length of that one submitted fish. And I don't, that might vary per race. Um, I think for the one I do, it's like three minutes per full inch or something like that, that you get deducted off your time. And if you don't catch a fish, it's like a, a major time penalty. And the one I do, um, the fishing's pretty easy. Like I think this year, every single person caught a fish. So it's that one's not too bad. But the other one I used to do, it was definitely not guaranteed that you could catch a fish. It was a much harder river to fish. And there'd be years that, you know, a quarter of the people to half the people wouldn't, wouldn't get one. So they'd have a time penalty. But yeah, it's usually a time off per inch from your race time and you don't have to drink a beer during that event because that is a an actual existing event on forest service land so i think they can't require you to drink anything but it's just highly encouraged that you take a a swig of whiskey at the halfway point or chug a beer or something but it's not actually part of your race time like it is in the trout man there you go well i will uh i'll be looking forward to the one in north carolina next year when is it uh, it is, it's either April or May. They, they don't have a date for it. Uh, I actually, when, when I heard about the trout man, I looked on their website and saw it and it was, uh, we had, I'd been up there like two weeks before and, you know, I just missed, I, I didn't even know about it till, uh, till I looked on the website and I had already missed it, but, um, sometime in the spring, it's a great okay. area, maybe three hours from Atlanta, something like that. Yeah, it's cool that they've got these popping up. I I don't want to um, say anything for sure yet, but I, I want to say I heard that they're looking into doing another one kind of in the East Midwest, and I don't know anything for sure, so I'm not going to say too much, but I think they they have other areas in the works, and I think it's really cool. And, and that one, at least, I think is not going to be trout-focused. It's going to be bass-focused, so that'll be kind of a fun a fun thing to see how that turns out. Fun change. I love it. Well, Palmer, I will... Let you get going. I know it's a little bit later for you over there, but as always, it was fun catching up and hearing about your brook trout progress. I'm sure we will do this again in the next 
year or two to hear more. And, you know, especially if you do a flyathlon, um, maybe that'd be another good time to check back in after, after you finish that, we can hear how that goes, hear how brook trout are going and um, just thankful for all you're doing out there for the native trout in Georgia. If everything falls in place, we'll have a lot of sample results by the time we do a flyathlon. So uh, yeah, we'll do it. Perfect. All right, Palmer. Well, thank you so much. Uh, as always, I appreciate it. And I hope you have a great night. Thanks for having me on and uh, you as well. All right. That's a wrap. Uh, thank you all for listening. If you want to find all the other episodes as well as show notes, you can find those on fishuntamed.com. Um, you'll also find a contact link there if you want to reach out to me. And you can also find me on Instagram at fishuntamed. Uh, if you want to support the show, you can give it a follow on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. And if you'd like to leave a review, it would be greatly appreciated. Uh, but otherwise, thank you all again for listening. I'll be back here in two weeks with another episode. Take care, everybody.